This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is July 29th, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. My name is Jared Greenberg. I was at Hofstra Radio from 2001 to 2005. Okay. And what shows or programs or departments did you work on or, or work with? Hey, Brian. I mean, uh, thanks for having me so much to, to tell these stories. I think, you know, WRHU is such a huge part of um, why and, you know, why I am where I am today. Mm -hmm. Um, so I really appreciate that. So for me, the focus was really on being in the sports department, but what I think WRHU did so well is making you experience more than just that. And I think with, with the help and something I'm sure we'll get into of the guidance of Ed Ed Ingalls is it was way more than just sports. Uh, did a lot of news coverage, particularly uh, political coverage, election night. Um, I was there for 9-11. That was obviously the craziest day of most of our lives and, and still remains that for me, um, covering that. And, and, and also occasionally doing music shows, you know, rock shows, pop shows, whatever it may be. The shift that, that Bruce Avery required you to do really helped me be more well-rounded within the, the media field. So it was primarily sports, but certainly did a whole bunch of everything while I was at WRHU. Okay. Um, did you have any titles or positions of management? Yeah. So um, I was really honored to start off very fresh into my career at, at RHU with an assistant sports director title uh, very early on and uh, eventually uh, served two terms as sports director at RHU. Okay. Um, when you were on the air, did you use your own name? Did you have any nicknames or aliases? Um, yeah, pretty much just just my, my name. Okay. Fair enough. Um, what was it that first brought you to WRHU? Well, I'll try and not make this its own uh, yearbook story, but <laughs> for oh, me, please this... do, please do. We've got we're radio people. We've got zeros yeah. and ones to to, to burn. So go ahead. <laughs> Appreciate it, Brian. This this literally was the most important and probably still the most important decision of my life. Um, I was not a very good student in in high school, uh, for that matter, ever. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and when when I was in high school, I had the the really good fortune of working for a college radio station for about three and a half years um, in my hometown of Mawa, New Jersey, this college called Ramapo College that gave me this unbelievable foundation and really fueled a fire for radio for me. And I recognized that this is the path I want to follow for the rest of my career. I realized that my freshman year of high school but it also, for the first time, connected the dots that, ooh, you know, school was important. I, I needed to go to college. I needed those experiences in college, uh, whether it be in the classroom, more importantly, out of the classroom, networking, internships, all of that. I, I needed that. So truly, from, I would say, my sophomore year of high school, I set out on a mission to find what I felt would be the best situation for me to not just enjoy college, not just to succeed in college, but to put me in position when I was done with those four years to go out and land the job and truly hit the ground running on the path to where I believed I wanted to go. And so, you know, the story I I, I tell a lot of um, 
you know, high school and college students now is that, you know, more than any book report, more than any exam that I've ever taken in my life, I worked my tail off to find the right match. And truly what Hofstra had for me was a unique combination that, that I truly feel fits the bill for a lot of people who, who want to go into sports media today in that, number one, you have a thriving high-level radio station that is committed to, to not just the educational aspect, not just the media and contact aspect, but putting it all together and training professionals. And then the other component for me was I wanted a high-level athletic department where I would be able to get practical experience doing what I wanted to do in real life once I got out of school in the real world. And I, I, I did all my homework on all these different schools. And, and granted, listen, there's a lot of great, great college radio stations around the country. There's a lot of great communication and, and radio focused programs around the country. But mm -hmm. I, I truly did not think at the time, and I still believe this to be true today, that for somebody who wants to go into sports radio, that there is that perfect combination of be, having the, the platform and having the content in front of you to prepare yourself for the real world. And, and you know, the other part of it too is that you're, you're in the New York market where there's not another competing commercial radio station calling at the time Hofstra football games basketball, baseball, lacrosse, like there may be another situation. So you truly are the on-air voice of a, an athletic department. And while I was there and still today, you know, they're, they're competing at, at a very high level and very uh, big situations that I got to do. And um, for me, all of that, plus a very huge factor, um, the day I found Ed Ingalls, um, at Hofstra was the day I knew that I could not go anywhere else, literally. With, with that combination of the radio station, the athletic department, on top of the fact that the education program was going to be really solid too, and then throw in Ed, it was like, to me, if, if I didn't get accepted to Hofstra, I didn't know what I was going to do. I probably, I think I had conversations with my parents about, all right, if, if for some reason I, I don't get accepted or admitted to Hofstra, I'll just go to a, a community school for a year uh, and then figure out a way to get into Hofstra because I had to be around Ed and I had to learn from him who truly was, is a, a legend of, yep. of, of radio in New York. And for me, I felt like this, this, all of this together was such a unique combination. Like you could find maybe one of those three. I don't think you could find an Ed anywhere in the country, but you could find right. a good athletic department. You could find a good radio station, but you, you couldn't find all three of those in New York where, by the way, I knew I'd have the opportunity, which came to fruition, of doing internships, networking with the right people. All of this together, Hofstra was the perfect place for me. And I, I knew that after doing all my research. So in terms of being a high school senior and and looking for colleges in mm. and around the year 2000 or so, What's the process of trying to find the right school? Had you heard of Hofstra before? And then another question, because I've, I've talked to a number of people um, who met Ed Ingalls, you know, in their introductory interview or when right. they first got to the station, they didn't necessarily know who Ed was. But I have a feeling that you had a sense maybe that this was an important guy. So what's the process for you in high school of finding Hofstra amid all the other stations and other universities 
And what did you know about Ed coming in? Right. Well, it's, it's a great question. And it's funny, you know, when people try and either devalue or not understand what college athletics bring to a university, to, to me, this is the, the case study for it. So at the time, when I was in high school, every one of Hofstra's football games, home basketball games, and home lacrosse games were all on, at the time, what was called Fox Sports New York. Before that, it was Sports Channel. Uh, many people remember that, MSG. And, and for me, every single Saturday, you know, around you know, 1 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the fall, winter, and spring, I would be watching a Hofstra sporting event. And at the time, the football program was a national powerhouse. The basketball program, led by Jay Wright, um, who is now a Hall of Fame uh, basketball coach, with Speedy Claxton and guys like Norman Richardson and Jay Hernandez, were playing all the time. And they were playing high-level games. They were getting into the NCAA tournament. The lacrosse team was a perennial top 10 lacrosse team in the country. And I was watching this at all times. So I was like, yeah, wow. You know, Hofstra seems like a cool school. They're, they're on TV. They're on in New York all the time. Like St. John's. Yeah. did not have the television deal that Hofstra had. Rutgers did not have, Fordham did not have the television deal Hofstra had. And for me to watch them all the time uh, and to see how high level they were playing, it was like, wow, this is this this school I need to look at. You know, I need to see it. And then the other part of it too, which Hofstra, and I'm, I hope they still do this, you know, I don't live in the New York area anymore, but their, their radio on, on uh, commercial radio, they had so many ads running all the time for Hofstra you know, so I combined those two things and I said to my parents, like, we need to go look at this school. You know, I need to do my research. And I, I, I met Ed, you know, um, on a campus visit. I got his phone number and I just started calling him once or twice a week, probably badgered him, probably got sick of me. But I started calling Ed, uh, I think my, my junior year of high school and just picking his brain. And yeah, you know, at first I didn't necessarily know everything about him, but learning that oh my God, this is a guy who called the Super Bowl. This was the guy who was, you know, the voice of sports. You know, back in the day, you turned on 8.80 a.m. in New York to find out the scores from last night. It, it was from Ed. And and there were so many people around the country that, you know, either grew up in New York or spent time in New York or like, yeah, Ed, Ed was the, the morning voice for me on how to get scores. So for me, yeah, it was, he was, he, he was the guy, like I said, that I needed to attach myself to. And it's, and it's, I mean, for you and I, it's not that, that weird, but for, for perhaps a younger person listening to this, what do you mean mm -hmm. you waited to get last night's scores on the radio in the morning? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's you know? crazy, right? But that was, that was the thing. I remember waiting for Newsday to arrive in the morning mm -hmm. or, or when I delivered it and to, to look up the scores and the batting averages and what's yep. going on or to listen to Standings, a radio yep. station. Yep. Yep. So that was all part of the process, but I want to, I want to go back a little bit further if you'll, if you'll indulge me here, sure. you start interning at this radio station in New Jersey mm -hmm. when you're uh, 13, 14, something like that. Yeah. 15, what, I think it's 15. Yeah. What convinces a 14 year old, a 15 year old to say, I want to spend my time at a radio station. What brought you there? So, you know, not, not to get too deep into it, but you know, I feel like it's, it's important to share for anybody who may have had a similar path as me in that, you know, like I said before, I was not a good student. I was not interested. I was not invested in school. I wanted to be an athlete. I was a terrible, out of shape athlete. I uh, struggled with some health issues that were all okay, but at the time hindered me a little bit. 
um, you know, social aspects of, of life were not as good as what I thought they should have been. And then all of a sudden I'm a freshman in high school and somehow I'm in this elective TV production class in Mawa, New Jersey. And at the end of one particular class, the teacher says, um, and again, remember I'm a freshman says, Hey, all the seniors, uh, I just want to let you know something. We got, um, a message from Ramapo college, which is literally two miles down the road from our high school. They're looking for some volunteers who may be interested in, in working in radio at some point to volunteer, to, to work at this college radio station. And, um, if you're a senior, here's a piece of paper, pick this up, call the station manager and they'll bring you in for an interview. And I thought about it for a second. I'm like, I'm a freshman, but, but who cares? Like, let's, let's go for it. And I happened to be, I think one of two people in the class that even took the piece of paper. I said, screw it. I talked to my parents. I'm like, I'm just going to call. I called. They never even asked me what year in high school I was. So I just went with it. I went to a meeting and the next thing I knew, they said, Literally with no training, there was no formal, you know, class like there is at RHU or anything. It was a, it was a hundred watt radio station. They gave me a Sunday morning music shift. And wow. at the time I'm 15 years old and I, I don't even have a driver's license. So even though the college is only two miles away, my father has to drive me to the radio station, uh, drive me to the campus. So he drives me, he takes me in and there's no one there. Like it's, like it's a, it's a small, like three room radio station. It's, you know, a, a, not even a 10th of the size of what RHU is. And I remember walking in and I literally had to flip the transmitter on. It was like a light switch, you know, on and off. And I flipped it on. I put a cart in the cart machine and I had to play, you know, a legal ID. And I literally, and I'll, this is, you know, one of the most vivid moments of my life. I looked at my father who, who was still there. He didn't want to leave because he didn't want to leave his like 14 or 15 year old kid just at this college campus. I looked at him as I was hitting my first track and I was like, I'm never doing anything other than this ever again. This is what I'm doing. And from that moment forward, Brian, and I'm not exaggerating this, I'm not sensationalizing it. I have dedicated my life to working in the media to, to at what I thought was at first I wanted to do sports talk radio, then being at R RHU, which was, the, I'm sorry, RPR, which was the radio station at Ramapo, they allowed me to do some play-by-play -play of the college uh, basketball team. I, they didn't have football. So I said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to start doing my high school football team. You know, the transmitter barely reached our high school football field, but you know, I was able to do high school football play-by-play. -play, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to do play-by-play -play on the radio for the rest of my life. My mom kept on saying, well, do you, do you want to explore TV? Do you want to do other things? I, I said, no, 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 no. I love sports talk radio. I love doing like the update aspect of it. I really, truly have a passion for play-by-play. -play. That's what I'm going to do. And that's what all led me to, to RHU. That's, you know, I, I, I became a better, I didn't become a good student. I became a better focused student who's like, all right, I got to graduate high school in order to get into Hofstra, right? Like that has to happen first. Um, and, and I made that my life's mission to, to truly succeed in this. And I knew that this was the only thing that married all the things in life I loved because there were very few things at that time, not to make this a sad, dark commentary, but, um, I love sports. I love talking. I love engaging with people. And for me, it brought it all together where I could do that on the radio. And from the time I was a, literally a freshman in high school, 
until uh, still today, um, you know, all of that happened because of that moment. And, and, and truly it, I was able to jump off, um, the diving board because of what I was eventually able to do at Hofstra. Do you remember the name of the teacher from that TV class in high school? I believe his name was Benedict, mm. Mr. Benedict, I, I believe. Just that offhand announcement, uh, yeah. which obviously didn't didn't register with a lot of the other students because there were only two of you who actually right. acquired. But that moment, yeah, changed the trajectory of your life. That's amazing. Thanks. It, it, it truly, I, I can't imagine missing that opportunity, right? Like, I, I talk all the time and, you know, it's almost cliche, but people so many times, particularly in this business where it's so competitive, talk about luck or being lucky. Uh, for me, it's never been about luck. It's about, and again, it sounds corny, but it, it truly is about preparation and opportunity and what you do with those two things. And for me, I had that opportunity and I took it and I ran with it. And then I began to prepare a career and all of those things came together. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, everybody who, who does the right things has a great career in media because it is so tough, but you can't just wait for those opportunities to be handed to you on a silver platter, right? Like you have to run through the door when it's presented. One of the things I love asking is people to describe the radio station, the physical station when they first arrive, when they first get there, maybe people they meet, what it looked like, what it smelled mm -hmm. like, people who are around. You have the unique experience of having spent time at a smaller radio station in mm -hmm. college. So what was it like going from the station in Ramapo to WRHU? What do you remember from that first time? So I remember seeing it on, on some tours that I took, and I think I went a, a couple of times just because I was so excited about it being mm -hmm. at, at Hofstra. And um, like I said, you know, it was basically like, you know, a, a closet, <laughs> the radio station that I worked at, the college radio station in New Jersey. And um, I think, I, I could be wrong on this, but I think the RHU upgrades, like it had just been redone in like either 99 or 2000 or something. Um, and I walked in, in in 2000 and I walked through the, the doors at Dempster Hall and I was like, holy, this is a commercial radio station, at least the aesthetics of it. And I remember whoever gave me that first tour at RHU basically said, it, it was an upperclassman, I believe, said, listen, like uh, some of us intern at Z100 or KTU or PLJ or whatever, this is, they don't have equipment this good. Uh, back then, you know, with the upgrades, the way it happened, it, the, the studios and then having the, the studio north and studio south and, you know, in the, in the middle of the mixing site, which the sports department eventually hijacked into like our sports talk show studio, um, you know, when we did like roundtable discussions, it was, it was so, it was, I was in awe. I was like, I'm going to spend the next four years of my life here just thriving. I'm going to, I'm going to dominate here uh, in, in terms of, you know, making sure that I, I squeeze every ounce of juice out of this piece of fruit that I'm going to get. And, and I was just so excited to see how cool the studio looked. And now going back, you know, I was back a couple of years ago for the, for the 60th anniversary and, and just to see the upgrades that have been done and, and, and now how there's more of a, a support system from the school of communications with all the newsrooms and all that type of stuff. Uh, it's just, it's unbelievable how, you know, 
and, and this is to me why practical experience is, is just so important because, you know, so many people talk about, oh, the education, the education. And yeah, like the, the in-classroom experience, yeah, that, that's important. But to, to mirror what you're going to do in the real world, like when I, when I started interning at 880, when, when Ed Ingalls, my junior year of college, got me an internship at, at 880 and I walked into the newsroom there, like it was obviously at a higher level and the, the pace was faster and obviously the, the heightened sense of uh, importance w- was there, but it was a lot of the same stuff that we were doing on Newsline or on the locker room or on things like that, where it just made me feel comfortable because I was working in a setting, in an environment that was real world, you know, and so many people want to make college radio stations like I used to always say this to people when we would apply for for credentials to a professional sporting event or something that truly didn't have a Hofstra tie where it's like, hmm, should, should a college radio station be going to this? I'm always like, I, I used to always say, and I remember identifying this even when I was in high school, when I was working at that college radio station in New Jersey, I was like, no, 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 we're a media outlet, right? Like it doesn't matter whether we're a hundred Watts, a thousand Watts, you know, 50,000 Watts, we're all doing the same thing. And if you treat yourselves like that now, then when it is time to truly be accepted into that world, you don't have to get acclimated or comfortable because that's all you know. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I'd like you to take us back to uh, once you're actually starting at Hofstra, you're matriculating, yeah. you're, you're, you're entering your freshman year, um, hmm. the training classes, you've already got experience being on the air. You've already got experience doing play-by-play and, and other mm-hmm. things. What is the process for getting you trained to be on the air at WRHU? Did you, were you able to skip <laughs> any of that or, or how did that work? I tried, Brian. I tried. <laughs> I, <laughs> I tried to twist Bruce Avery's arm so much. To, I remember these calls my junior and senior of, uh, of high school saying, listen, it, it, the, the moment I get accepted and then eventually when I did get accepted, you know, I'd be on the phone with Ed Ingalls. Um, <laughs> I, I remember calling him at night, you know, seven, eight o'clock at night. I felt bad taking him away from, from Margaret and the kids. But I would always like talk his ear off like, listen, Ed, I've been doing this for four years. Like, why do I need a training class? And, and, and then, and then once I accepted the fact that you've got to do the training class, like there is no, you know, avoiding, and, and ultimately I was really glad I did the training class because you, you do need it. Absolutely. Uh, but, uh, once I accepted the fact that I would have to take the training class, then I moved on to, well, why do I have to wait until my freshman year of high school to do the training class? Like that's football season. I don't want to be in the training class during football season. I want to be on the air or, you know, at least part of the broadcast in some capacity uh, during football season. And at that time, like Hofstra football back in 2001 was really, really good. They had a chance to win a national championship. They had one of the best college players in the country on their team. And I, I was just like, I, I got to be a part of this. Like I can't, you know, I started doing all my homework on the team, learning everything, preparing. And so eventually I was like, you know, why can't I just take the spring training class my, you know, essentially my second semester of, of my senior year? Why can't I do that? And they're like, no, you can't, you can't do that yet, all that. And then eventually Ed called me up one day and said, well, Jared, how about this? Talked with Bruce, talked with Joel Myers, and we're going to try something new. There's a bunch of people we're going to try and get into a summer training class. He said, we've never done this before, but in the month of uh, I believe it was May and June. Um, it's two days a week. So are you able to do it? Would you come in 
to the, the would you drive to, to Hofstra to do it? And I was like, absolutely. So I believe it was twice a week. I would leave high school, <laughs> you know, because I'm still in high school. Remember, I went right. through June, you know, even though college is out. So the, so the semester was over at Hofstra, but they technically it was their summer, still my spring semester at, at, at my senior year of high school. I commuted twice a week, drove to Hofstra, took this training class, loved it, um, was freaking out because I was never a good test taker and I was never good at any class in life, right? Like, how am I going to, how am I going to do well at this? Even though I've done four years of radio, even though I have, I have a good idea, uh, eventually passed the training class. And then I started doing, then in the summer, Ed Ingalls would hold his annual sports broadcasting camp. So what Ed had me do was for his sports broadcasting workshop that he would do for, that would last a week or a couple of weeks, I would stay at his house and before the class would even start, I'd wake up early and do the morning show, do the sports on the morning show. So I started doing morning show and newsline over the summer. And then by the time the fall hit, uh, I, and at the time, the sports department was not nearly the size that it is now. And we were short-staffed at the time for one reason or another. And um, I had the opportunity to be a part of the football broadcast. I was in studio doing... Um, you know, pre halftime and post game shows. So hitting the ground running with that was just so unbelievable. It's actually funny. I remember uh, going to my orientation at Hofstra where you had to, you know, go for a couple mm -hmm. of nights and, and stay in the dorms and, you know, get acclimated with the campus and all that. And uh, I, I remember one time I said to, you know, I don't remember what they had, like a counselor or like a mentor or whoever they had, like looking over you, because technically you're not truly a student. You're not in there yet. I said, Hey, um, Hope you don't mind, but I'm going to wake up at five in the morning um, <laughs> because I'm going to just run across campus real quick and do the morning show, and then I'll be back for any activities we have. And they were like, "Really?" I was like, "Yeah, no, no problem. I'll be, you know, I'm just going to go across campus, do the morning show, and then I'll come back." And and you know, I didn't miss any orientation because nothing nothing would have started that early. Uh, but you know, so having the opportunity to take that summer training class and hit the ground running was just such an awesome opportunity for me. That is that is pretty fantastic. I mean, my next question was going to be, do you remember your first time on the air at WRH? And if not your exact first time, maybe one of the first games that you called or one of your early experiences. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are so many to recall, Brian, um, you know, and, and I go back to being in the right place at the right time, taking advantage of an opportunity and being prepared for that opportunity as well. Again, we were really short staffed at the time of my freshman year. Uh, by the by, the time I was a second semester um, freshman, I was already the assistant sports director. So all these opportunities. I remember our first football game we ever did. Again, you know that that uh, it was against Northeastern. We kicked the crap out of them. Uh, I remember my parents drove up for the game. They're sitting in the stands. Listen, had a Walkman in. By the way, a Walkman is a, a radio that you'd have with a. In case anybody's listening who doesn't know. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And then we went out to dinner afterwards and, you know, did all the football games from the studio that year. Um, some, of the, some of the cool, I, I, my, my, my coolest experience, my, my freshman year, and still to this day, one of the coolest experiences I ever had. Um, I don't think, Brian, I had other, on, other than like watching Hofstra on TV, I don't think I'd really ever watched a lacrosse game in my life. Mm -hmm. But we were so short-staffed my spring semester of my freshman year, we needed people to do lacrosse, not just studio, like needed to call the games. So I, you know, before there was master class, I found a, you know, lacrosse for dummies book and 
at the time, our head coach was this legend, John Donowski, who, yeah. uh, you know, is now the unbelievable head coach at Duke, went to him and just studied with him and learned the, learned the sport and picked his brain, all that stuff. So early in the season, one of the trips was a huge matchup between Hofstra, who at the time was in the top 10 in the country, against Notre Dame. We're at Notre Dame. And we had this massive weather delay at Notre Dame. And we eventually play the game outside at an alternative field. And after the game, we're, we're waiting for all the guys to shower. And John Danowski taps me and my broadcast partner on the shoulder. And he says, come with me. And he was friends with one of the assistant athletic directors at Notre Dame. And he goes, let's go. And the three of us, John Danowski, me and my broadcast partner, went on this walk, started off in the basketball arena, the Bryce, I believe it's the Bryce Center in Notre Dame, eventually led to the football field in Notre Dame, which anybody who's watched Rudy, which at the time, Rudy was my favorite movie of all time, walked on, walked onto the field at Notre Dame and then took us into the legendary locker room where you touch the sign, play like a champion today. And I'll never forget corny thing, but like I eventually found a, a bookstore at Notre Dame later on in the day and bought one of those play like a champion towels and from the time I was, you know, that was my freshman year of college at Hofstra until probably, probably till I got engaged, which was only a few years ago, I had that towel above all of my doors, wherever I lived, you know, by myself, obviously, because my wife would never allow that to, to be in our house. Understandable, yeah, but yeah. Right. I mean, it was either the towel or marriage. So I, I guess I went with marriage, but you know, that experience was just so freaking cool. And we had so many of those in the sports department over the years, whether it was uh, broadcasting an unbelievable game at Gonzaga, at the University of Maryland, at Syracuse, at Madison Square Garden against St. John's, calling, a, you know, one of the greatest moments I ever had was calling a NCAA softball tournament game uh, at Nebraska under the lights with a few thousand people in the stands and, and Hofstra nearly uh, actually did upset, you know, one of the top teams and one of the best pitchers in the country at the time. It was just, you know, all of these experiences were just so unbelievable that you wouldn't have gotten if you go to a college and work at a radio station that has a commercial station that dedicates all their time to doing this and money because we were the voice of Hofstra and Hofstra, the athletic department and, and Bruce and Ed and, and Joel and now John really pushed for that to happen. I'm going to take a wild guess here. And, and assume that you were very comfortable on the air right away. It seems like you were prepared for this. In terms of like the social life and, and the community of Hofstra Radio at the time, do you think you felt comfortable pretty quickly, you know, going in and doing the morning show, working with Ed? Uh, who were some of the people who were around as you were getting started and helping you get comfortable? Probably too comfortable. <laughs> uh, I definitely need to be checked a few times. There's no question. But you know, that's where Ed came in and Ed really provided some unbelievable feedback for things you needed to get better, things you never thought of, you know, had, had a right for radio, which I had never, nobody ever talked to me about that before. Um, and, and there's just tips like that, that I still use today. Like what's, you know, the most important things, um, you know, even when I'm on air today, uh, doing, you know, an NBA playoff games, things will just instinctively hit me that, that, that Ed had taught me now, you know, more than 20 years ago. So, um, Ed, Ed was just, Ed really brought me back down to reality. He was, he was the biggest supporter of me. He would fight for me 
uh, at times when I was too cocky, too comfortable, too arrogant. Uh, but he also understood this flame that was lit inside of me that needed to be nurtured because if you put it out, it's like, where am I going? Like, what? <laughs> I, I don't know if Ed realized this, but I knew it. If I, if I didn't have radio, if I didn't have this potential future in front of me, I, I wouldn't have had much. So uh, I think Ed kind of understood that and said, listen, hey, we're going to tamp it down a little bit, but here, here's, here's how we're going to get good. And here's how you're going to, you know, be the best possible you you can be. Hmm. Hmm. That's amazing. That's wonderful. What were some of the other experiences? Or you, you mentioned a little bit doing doing some news, doing mm-hmm. some music programs. What were some of the other things that helped you get acclimated and and sort of expand your horizons at Hofstra Radio in those early days? So, you know, I, I kind of glossed over this earlier, Brian, but um, within the first ten days, I think it was day eight or day nine. Um, as a college freshman, 9-11 happens. Mm-hmm. And again, vividly, I, I can tell you every minute of that day, uh, I was in a class. Uh, I think I had an, an, an 8 a.m. class uh, a, few, a few buildings away from Dempster Hall. And after the class was over, I was supposed to go meet with an advisor. And as I'm meeting, as I'm walking up the stairs in that same building, a few buildings away from Dempster, I, I just hear some people rumbling, you know, going around again, because like you had cell phones, but you didn't have Twitter. You didn't get alerts on your phone. Right. And I heard people say the bridges are shut down. And I was like, the bridges are shut down. What, what the hell does that mean? And I go up to my advisor and she's like, Jared, we got to reschedule. Can't do this now. The world trade center plane just crashed into it. And I'll never forget this. There's, two flights of stairs in that building. And I don't know what it was, Brian, like nobody had talked to us about this at RHU. Nobody had ever like prepared you, not, not obviously for a nine 11 situation, but for any like emergency or breaking news situation, nobody, nobody thought about these things, but instinctively I turned and I sprinted, sprinted full speed. And if you know anything about me, you know, I don't sprint that often, Brian, hmm. um, sprinted down these two flights of stairs. I think it was called like Roosevelt hall or something. I'm not sure. And I ran the probably hundred yards, if if that, to Dempster. And I don't know what it was. I just ran to RHU. Like that was the first place. Like the the, the biggest tragedy of our lives was was happening. And I decided to run to the college radio station. And with within minutes, there was like dozens of people there, dozens. And I noticed, I recognized what a community this was. And we went into action. And like, couldn't do much. Like I remember trying to call my family in New Jersey and my, my cell phone, you couldn't get through. You could, right. couldn't call anybody. Um, but the craziest thing about being at Hofstra was even though we were, what is it? 15 miles from, you know, Times Square, you still felt obviously more than just seeing it on TV or hearing the reports. You felt like it was happening right here because of where Hofstra's campus is located. So I decided, um, or somebody sent me, I don't remember what happened. We, we broke into breaking news and we, we started doing news coverage and I go to the library and I go to the top of the library and I, I saw the smoke, like I mm-hmm. saw the building burning and I couldn't get a hold of my parents. I couldn't get a hold of my brothers. Um, I knew that my brothers worked in the city, but didn't know if they were there that day. I knew that my sister-in-law who was pregnant was working in the city, um, at the time. 
Uh, couldn't get a hold of anybody, but there I am at, you know, I'm still 17 years old. I hadn't even turned 18 yet. And I'm watching this. I'm like, is, is the world ending? Like what, like what we had no idea what was going on. And I did a report from, from the library. And one of the things that I observed was all of these fire trucks and ambulances going west on Hempstead Turnpike. And I was probably right in my assumption, but I was wrong for how I reported it. I'll never forget this. It was such a great life lesson for me. Um, I said on the air, they put me, they, so my cell phone for some reason got through to the radio station. So I was able to do this report on the air. I said, I'm seeing dozens and, and probably it was more than dozens of fire trucks and ambulances. Like it felt like every fire department and ambulance in on Long Island was going west. And, you know, if you know the ge geography of yep. Long Island, like, you know, it, there's only certain ways to go. And if you're going west on Hempstead Turnpike, you're going towards the city. Like that, that's, you know, that's the way you're going. And I said, it appears all of these, these ambulances and, and fire trucks are going um, to, to be, you know, support or to go into action. I said something like that. And I got back to the station and Bruce Avery, uh, who was part of our coverage, pulled me aside. I'll never forget this. And he said, Jared, he goes, listen, don't say that type of thing on the air. And he said, listen, you may have been right, but you've got to get that type of information confirmed. You don't know that. And at the time, I don't think we truly knew just how grand of a scale this whole thing was, right. right? Like we didn't know exactly what was going on yet. We were still kind of flushing it all out. And Bruce was right. It was a great life lesson for me. Like, you know, you've got to call people, you've got to get sources or you've got to, you know, check information out. And even on like the greatest day of our country's history, at least in modern times, you know, while I was 17 years old and, and learning how to be a reporter, even though I thought I had known some things, I really got a reality check of, of how to handle news. And, and those are the type of things that now I, I deal, listen, I don't deal in that breaking news. I deal in the sports realm. I deal in the basketball realm and it's much different, but I think of that type of stuff all the time about how, how to handle breaking news, how to do things correctly. Um, so Bruce taught me a great lesson that day, but nine 11 happened. Like I said, within the first two weeks of me being on a college campus, um, we had later that year, a massive, mayoral mayoral election and and i think mm -hmm. was a gubernatorial election i'm not sure but there was a massive election that ed engel sent me to um you know one of the uh, headquarters that i was in new york city for covering and then um i think my junior year of, high, of college is when the blackout of new york happened which was another collective day of a sense of community where again everyone had felt like that worked in the news or sports department just showed up at rhu we didn't have any power we, we, we couldn't do anything. And then eventually we moved our whole operation to Ed Engel's house. And there was like 20 of us staying at Ed Engel's house. And, and we started doing reports for other radio stations. Uh, I don't remember whether it was Joel Myers or, or, or if John was there at the time. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember this, but or maybe Bruce and Ed set this up. We were going to commercial radio stations who had generators who were able to go on the air but didn't have the staff to do this. And we were doing reports on what was going on and what you know, the electric company and what the police department and what the fire department were saying. And it was just such a cool experience to do that. Uh, it just sucks that, you know, you're part of all of these horrific experiences, but they really trained us for the real world. And I remembered at the time I was simultaneously doing my internship 
at, at 880 in the newsroom. Um, and, and so I was able to use a lot of the skills that I learned from breaking news, what they do in breaking news scenarios and how they, uh, collect news, how they gather information, how they distribute it, how they decide what to use, how frequently you have to use certain stories and cycle through it. And it was just a cool experience to be able to apply that to the blackout and say, all right, guys, this is how we're going to cover this story. And it was cool to be able to supply that to multiple, um, commercial radio stations throughout Long Island. Thank you for sharing all that. That's uh, it's really powerful and, and it's amazing. And it calls to mind recent conversations I've had. I just talked about a week or so ago with Dave Plotkin, mm. who would have been there. The legend. With you. Yeah. And uh, I talked to Bruce Avery earlier this summer about big events in the course of his 29 years at Hofstra Radio. And he talked about not only the broadcast skills, but but training upstanders, I believe is the, the phrase that he used, people who will respond in a particular way, you know, that's your instinct, your reaction. When you hear this news from your advisor is I'm sprinting across campus. Hmm. Dave gave a similar story about doing that. And um, so many of us uh, in these moments, and it, it could be any number of things and across the generations of Hofstra Radio, but there's so many of us who in that moment turn to the radio station and turn to the community. And I don't know if you can answer this question. I'm not even sure what the question is, but I'm going to ask you to, to sort <laughs> of talk about this. What is it? Is it, is it something intrinsic in us, the people who become broadcasters? Is it something in the training of the community? Is it something about uh, working in this very uh, immediate medium? What is it that makes us run to the station or run to a microphone and say, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to tell the story. I, you know, Brian, I don't, I don't love to call myself a journalist uh, because I think, you know, it's, it's so hard to define these days or, or if you can define it, you know, the rules get broken <laughs> every second in, in, in today's media uh, landscape. But I think there's something to the heart of, why you get into this business. And it's something that I hope people who are either, you know, in it and are struggling or, or are trying to figure out if they want to get into it, truly ask themselves, why, why are you getting into this? And I think so many people in this day and age, and, and listen, I love social media, so I'm not going to be one of these old dudes who's like, oh, our social media is ruining the world. But I, I think a lot of what we're seeing now, and, and listen, Brian, I'm sure you saw this back in your day at Hofstra, and even, you know, on, on, on a college radio station, you see this. People do things for fame, for celebrity, because being on the air is a cool job that everybody says they want. But when you really get at the heart of what it takes to thrive in this industry, it's, it's nothing about celebrity or fame. It's about the hard work. It's about caring it's about understanding what you're doing for your audience. And it's the hardest lesson for me. And I, I still try and bring this, I, I do bring this into every broadcast I do today um, because I think it's something that gets forgotten is that your job is not for you. It's not for your friends. It's not for your parents. It's not for your family. When you open up a microphone, whether it's on radio, TV, a podcast, whatever medium, you're there serving an audience 
And you don't always get to determine who that audience is. And when there's a big story, you know, whether it's something that's really all that not important in the scheme of things in, you know, in the world, like what I cover, which is the NBA, or it's, you know, a terrorist attack on this country, you have to recognize who's tuning into you or who might be tuning into you. Or on a day like a blackout or 9-11 or, you know, a major political race, people that might just stumble upon you and not even recognize that, you know, they want this information, but you're filling them in on something that they don't know about. And you're giving them not only headlines, but context and perspective. It's, it's really important to get to that root of, of what we do. And again, it, it, there's a spectrum, you know, there's the, the really important stuff like, you know, that, that gets covered on hard news every day. There's the really superficial stuff like entertainment, you know, probably sports is down on that end somewhere, you know, um, but we're, we're, we're there distributing information. This is why, you know, what's happened the last few years, this attack on media has been so personal for so many of us because of this job that I don't think people recognize. They take for granted what we do. And I think oftentimes people who are on the air, who, who talk into a microphone, take it for granted as well, that we're there serving a purpose. We're there serving a client, if you will. People who are consuming information and have a need and a want or not even knowing in certain circumstances when it comes to breaking news that this information is important to them when they're tuning in, but they find that out. And I think that, you know, taking, taking your responsibility seriously and being prepared for those situations, not, not that you can necessarily be prepared for a terrorist attack on the country, sure, but, sure. but understanding that, okay, if something significant happens and, and having, having a general idea of what that means, um, you know, that, that we can go into action and at the very least, we can take information we're getting in, we can reach out for more information and we can distribute that information. And I, I just think that whatever you're doing, whether you're doing weather, entertainment, sports, news, politics, religion, you know, uh, social conversations, whatever it is, uh, taking that responsibility seriously and understanding that, that the fame and celebrity aspect of, of any of this is something that might come with it and that's just kind of an accident and that's not important to any of us taking this action to say we have a responsibility we have a duty um to to serve our audience and to serve our viewers and listeners is the most important thing and giving them what they what they have a, a right to expect from you hmm. well said I, I i think as you were saying that i i, I don't know that there's anybody during your time at Hofstra radio or, or my time who in a situation like that would be like, ah, that's not my job. I'm not going to bother or right. I'm a sports guy or I'm, you know, do the jazz show or I do the rock show. <laughs> I'm not going to go to the station and help out. Right. You know, I think, I think that there's just that. And, and some of it is, you know, maybe I'm not on the air or maybe I'm, I'm on the board or, or maybe I'm making phone calls, but, but people have that, I think, as you were saying, that sense of responsibility to, uh, transmit that information to whoever might happen by. And, and even in the case of the blackout where you guys didn't even have power to the transmitter, you were still doing the work. And I think that's right. a, a testament to not only the Hofstra radio community, but the type of people that it, that it attracts. No question. Hmm. Um, so by the end of your fr freshman year, 
You've yeah. seen and done a few things. <laughs> yeah. You've already Crazy. had a career in radio <laughs> by the time you've gotten to the end of your freshman year. Um, this is, uh, you've, you've already articulated, you've already talked about, you know, your expectations going in and usually I wrap up with this question and this doesn't mean we have to wrap up, but my question is usually, what did you think WRHU would mean to you in those early days? What did you hope it would be walking in? Let's, let's take a slightly different angle. You've been through Mm -hmm. a lot in that freshman year. Where's your head at, at that point? What are you expecting? What are you hoping for the rest of your career? at So for me, Brian, I, I really turned my attention to, okay, you know, the most important thing in our world at that time in terms of, you know, becoming a professional member of the media was your demo tape. And for me, I just felt I needed to get as many reps doing as many different things as possible. Uh, still with the focus at that time of, of I want to, when I leave Hofstra, do play-by-play on the radio. And that, that's what I thought I would do. So for me, um, the, the, one of the coolest things, and, and this is something that I didn't mention before among all the <laughs> dozens of other things I mentioned, one of the co- really cool benefits of being at Hofstra was the Jets would practice at, at Hofstra. Yeah. And I, since, since the time I was 14 years old, even before, oh, no, 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 it was right, right when I started working at the college radio station, when I was in, in a freshman in high school, I networked, didn't re- realize that was the word at the time, but networked with uh, a guy named by, by the name of Ian Eagle, who mm-hmm. if, if you're in New York, if you're a sports fan around the country, he's one of the biggest, most successful sportscasters in the world. Works at CBS, works at the Yes Network, now works as a colleague of mine at Turner Sports. Um, and he, during the preseason, is the television voice of the Jets. So what I started doing um, going into my junior year and going into my senior year of, of college, I started to get a couple of reps of doing play-by-play of both football and basketball. And I would walk over to the Jets facility, or I, I'm sorry, I'd drive over to the Jets facility, and I'll never forget these moments that I had. And back then, you know, you have a CD player in your car and take the CD. I'd, I'd create a demo reel, and I'd pop it in my car, and Ian, who would be there at the Jets facility doing his prep work for the upcoming game, interviewing players, coaches, all that, would come out to the parking lot and meet me and sit in my car. So one of the most successful sportscasters in the world is, wow. is on our campus and he's sitting in my passenger seat and he's just ripping to shreds my demo tape, which for me was like the greatest experience of my life. Like right. people think this is, this is such a misconception I think of, of on air people in this country is that like, we don't like feedback. We don't like criticism. No, like we, we thrive on that. We need that. A good, a good sportscaster, a good on air person wants to know how they can get better, not from Joe Schmo, but from a credible source. And this guy was everything I ever wanted to be. And so I, from, from that point on, recognized through Ian's help, and certainly Ed was there too, um, understanding that I now need to have a serious focus on not just doing play-by-play and, and hosting sports shows and doing updates and doing the morning show and doing Newsline and all, all that, but but I needed to have a focus within that to say, okay, what 
what am I doing that sounds like it's professional where I could now put this on a demo tape, send this to any market in the country, and I would at least get interviews or people would call me back. And, and that truly became became my focus. And just, just a quick aside, I know this is not what this, um, this, this audio yearbook is truly about, but it's just for me, you know, the, the, the coolest part of my career to date is that, you know, I met Ian um, back in around 1999 or so, and, you know, maybe 98, and, you know, tapped him on the shoulder at a Nets game when he's calling Nets games mm-hmm. and said, you know, I want to do this one day. I want to be right alongside you. I want to, you know, I want to make this my career. And then obviously we kept the relationship going when he was at, on the Hofstra campus doing those Jets games and, and I was a student there. And then we always just kept in touch from there on out. And we did, you know, he had me work at some of his sports casting camps over the years. And then back uh, right before the pandemic started, uh, back in, in January of 2020, um, we got assigned to work on the same game together at T- on TNT. Oh, so cool. more than 20 years ago came full circle that we were calling a game together on national TV. Um, you know, after all these years of, of, you know, heeding his mentorship. And in fact, I just got off the phone with him yesterday, picking his brain about certain things that I want to improve on. And he gave me some great advice. So, you know, that's people talk about networking and building relationships and, and learning how to um, maximize what you can get from people and not just make it a one-sided thing. Like so many people will call or reach out to me and just say, Hey, here's this over platter. Can you get me a job? Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. n- no, I, I can't, but here's what I can do. I can help you. I can show you the ropes. I can show you what I know. You can ask me questions. I can answer anything. And that's what somebody like Ian did for me. And, and again, Hofstra having the jets on campus was just such an invaluable. And we, you know, we got to cover the jets too and, and, and do a lot of that. So it's just such an invaluable experience. Jared, this has been uh, an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for sharing these stories. We, I, I feel like we've just scratched the surface. I feel like you've got <laughs> hours more worth of stories. Maybe we can we can carve out another hour or two and, and get the rest of yeah. your your career at Hofstra Radio. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you, Brian. It's it's an honor, and I love it. And I hope I hope people understand. For me, um, this I, I don't take this as talking about me. I take this as providing an example for younger people that there's so many different paths that you can take to be successful. There's so many different paths that you can take, um, to, to figure out what you want to do in this industry. It's, it's, it's a wonderful industry. I I get so annoyed and frustrated when the, the older generations of this industry talk to younger people and say, ah, you don't want to do this industry. It doesn't pay enough. You work weekends, you work holidays, you miss weddings, you miss funerals, you know, don't, don't do this industry. I'm here to tell you all the great things about it. And, that if you work your tail off and invest your time and find the right situations for you, not for anybody else, but for you, you can have a really, really uh, fulfilling life uh, in this in this industry. Which uh, I believe I'm married to. You know, like I always tell my wife, it's it's she's my she's my second marriage. My my first marriage <laughs> is my career, and it always will be that way because of how how much passion, how much I love it, and I, I just love talking about it and. And I appreciate you taking the time to do this because um, RHU has meant so much to me, to so many other people. And it, it truly, you know, with, with Bruce's leadership, as you know, from, from the beginning, um, has, has really put people in position to succeed, which is, which is the least you can ask for uh, from, from an institution of, of higher learning. Yeah, I think, I think so many of the things that you've talked about, um, you know, have been 
there in various forms over the decades of Hofstra Radio, and uh, mm-hmm. and to see it pass forward uh, through different generations, through different relationships, and then you know your words here and 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 your experiences and your advice. Uh, I think that that sort of puts a nice bow on the on the whole idea of what we're trying to do here and connect the generations and the community of Hofstra Radio. So thank you. Well, thank you, Brian, for doing this. Really appreciate it. It takes a lot of effort on your part. So we appreciate everybody. Thanks you, I'm sure, for for putting in all this time.